Welcome to Konrad's Journey Through the Middle East, a podcast by the Konrad Adenauer Foundation's Syria, Iraq office from Beirut, featuring discussions and analysis on contemporary political, social and economic issues in the MENA region. My name is David Labude, Research Fellow at the Syria, Iraq office. Today, we will talk about the spread of the coronavirus in Iraq and its effects on the country. Iraq is currently dealing with a multitude of problems, for instance, the lack of government, ongoing civil unrest, American-Iranian tensions, and an oil price shock. On top of that is the COVID-19 pandemic worsening the situation. To further discuss on these subjects, I'm joined today by Hafsa Halawa. Hafsa is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute and an independent consultant working on political, social, and economic affairs across the MENA region. She recently published an article on U.S.-Iran tensions in Iraq and its effect on civil society. Welcome to the podcast. Um, hi, David. Thanks for having me on. Hafsa, so far until June 2020, over 25,000 people were tested positively and more than 850 people died due to COVID-19 infection in Iraq. How reliable are these numbers? Um, in relation to the uh, COVID-19 numbers that we're seeing uh, inside Iraq and, and to mirror the concerns, I guess you could say, across most of the region, is that it's very, very difficult to know reliability of numbers, um, in part because testing is so limited, uh, not just in terms of the number of tests being carried out, but testing capacity as well and the ability to um to be able to administer tests across the country in a in a uh, in, in a timely fashion to get a sense of the virus spread um, the uh, the numbers are i think everyone would agree surprisingly low for a country of Iraq's population the type of living standards and primarily of course because there was a lot of movement between the borders of Iran and, and Iraq Uh, when the virus first broke out, and we've seen what's happened in in Iran with their um, their COVID-19 outbreak, so there's almost parts of the story that don't make a lot of sense. Having said that, we don't have much to go on in terms of refuting the numbers. Um, media access is limited, uh, the ability to monitor and engage is is limited, and um, you know it's, it's difficult to get a real handle both within uh, Baghdad and, of course, in the KRI as well, on how the country is, uh, how the spread is being contained. Having said that, I would just add that Iraq did impose significant border lockdown measures quite early on um, and looked to close its its uh, its uh, borders. Um, and even within the country, there was a limited movement early on across provincial lines as well. So there there certainly is a case to be made that they've managed to uh, reduce the mass spread in this fashion. However, I certainly would take those numbers with, with a pinch of salt um, owing to uh, the general cultural trends in the Middle East, the fear factor in terms of going to hospital or going to institutions to claim that you're sick or need treatment and of course the the very uh, the religious cultural rituals of being buried immediately uh, almost immediately after death makes it very very difficult to keep up with the tally of of how many people may have already tested positive and even already died from this you mentioned the government's response 
and that borders have been closed, however, not entirely. On a more general level, could you tell us on the atmosphere, on the ground, what are the precautions Iraqis take on a personal level? I would certainly say that um, civil society has really stepped in in terms of supporting awareness campaigns, particularly where in-person activity, whether that be civil society support to vulnerable communities in the, in the say, liberated areas or even civil society uh, in the regions or areas further south that were really con consumed with the protest movement for many months beforehand. All of this activity in terms of civic activism and engagement has very much moved online. We've got civic actors providing video demonstrations of how to sanitize their their homes and and uh, how to uh, best conduct you know sanitation methods in terms of cooking and so forth hand washing videos similar to what we've seen across the sort of awareness realm uh, across the world really whether it's from medical professionals or government professionals in even the western developed states and how's the government's response in terms of the uh, government's conduct, it, um, I, th I think in general there's a very mixed response on the ground to the actions taken by the government. On the one hand, we have the presidency's national initiative that was announced in March that sort of attempted to reach out to all parts of Iraqi society, be they civil society, businessmen, traders, etc., religious establishments. And there certainly is this attempt to unify across the lines, you know, the religious establishments. And Nejef has been working on awareness campaigns, has also been supporting where they can vis-a-vis -vis, uh, medical support, sanitation, health, and also uh, awareness. Civil society is very active, always though slightly independent of the government, of course. And we've had anecdotal stories of businessmen or traders, you know, contributing in terms of donations to either in medical supplies or in funds to to fund the medical uh, effort or the health effort, public health effort to respond to the virus. The government, of course, has initiated or had initiated a, a curfew. There was general lockdown, intra-connecting flights within the country were closed for, for uh, I think, actually, they, they still remain. The, the border question, particularly with Iran, has remained a very precarious and political subject to address as even one could argue the Iraq-Syria border in part because it's not very well secured, uh, secured. So being able to close and monitor traffic is not necessarily as easy as one would imagine in, in the case of just simply shutting down borders. Um, you know, we've heard anecdotal stories of, or, you know, there's been reports in the media of uh, certain militias or, or supporting militias to the Iraqi militias being sent in from Iran to support the COVID effort. We've had anecdotal stories and media reports of thousands of people streaming into Iraq from Iran, even after a lockdown was, was inst you know, was instigated. Obviously, all of that is harder to verify in, in a climate where not only is media access difficult, but also now physical movement that much harder. So it's not necessarily easy to, to be able to confirm or deny any of these um, kinds of allegations. Is Iraq, in your opinion, equipped to handle the COVID-19 pandemic? Does it have sufficient medical facilities, ICUs, ventilators and medical personnel? What kind of disparities in treatment are being seen from province to province? I think generally 
the the question of how readily equipped the country is to handle the COVID-19 pandemic is is a very localised province-to-province question. Uh, Certainly, I would just highlight here that there is massive disparity in the availability of medical services and facilities between those liberated provinces, provinces that were major focal points in the war against ISIS, Islamic State, in recent years, and the rest of the country. That's not to say that the disparity, the disparity is, you know, an incredibly developed healthcare system in a place like, say, I don't know, Baghdad or, or in Nasriya compared to maybe Hawija or Urkhanaqin in, in Diyala, for example. But there certainly is a big difference. I mean, the most hard hit areas post-conflict have not been reconstructed. We've seen and reported on significantly the massive damage that's been done to infrastructure, health facilities, educational facilities and so forth. And in part, that's the reason why we have so much displacement that is not, or displaced, I should say, that are not returning to their areas of origin, in part because these cities and towns and, and major parts of provinces remain remain in remain to be completely frank raised to the ground as they were during the war both in response to the ground war against ISIS but also the coalition the international coalition's airstrikes that were that took place across most uh, across many parts of the country and what that means is that uh, locals in those areas uh, even uh, you could argue that IDPs and camps and so might be better serviced because there is the international community that remains present in most areas. But generally speaking, we're talking about population centres in these provinces that have been so hard hit, unable to access nearby healthcare. I mean, I reported last year on the fact that many people in and around Sinjar and in the Nainiwa Plains were having to travel hundreds of kilometres either into Syria or into parts of the Kurdistan region in order to seek any kind of medical treatment. And at the time, uh, that was more targeted on maternal health and and, uh, and pediatric care for young children. But the same would be said for a COVID-19 response. There are no facilities in and around these destroyed cities that can service What is your take on international support for Iraq? Is the country left alone at the moment or does it receive assistance from abroad? And who is helping Iraq in combating the COVID-19 pandemic? I mean, generally, I don't think any country has been you know, left alone. Iraq does benefit particularly towards, I think, its, um, its displaced uh, refugee community that uh, there is a large international community presence already in the country. So we have a number of relief agencies who have uh, shifted maybe parts of their budget lines or parts of their service delivery to directly respond to the pandemic. And, you know, just to name a couple, we know that the people like the Danish Refugee Council, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, uh, UNHCR themselves are giving hygiene cash assistance for uh, to, to support the efforts against the pandemic. And of course, as every as as every country has, they, Iraq does have a, a presence for the WHO. The WHO Iraq office is present and, and is uh, is certainly leading the um, the effort in, in responding uh, as in in uh, collaboration with the governments in the KRI and in Baghdad as it does um, across the world. And then you have the more, shall we say, politically influenced support, which we've seen across the world, particularly when it comes to questions of um, personal protective equipment and the PPE crisis that we've seen globally. So we do, you know, we have seen 
two or three loads, I think it is, of Chinese aid, along with medical experts who've made their way to Iraq to provide support, you know, and, and across the region. I don't know how much specifically Iraq is a beneficiary, but we do see countries engaging in support and transfer, notably of, of equipment, uh, PPE specifically, to aid countries who, who require it. So certainly Iraq is not left alone and, and it does it does have some uh, significant assistance uh, streams that it has been able to tap into. I have a question for you on the protests. The protest movement started on October 1st last year. The uprising lost momentum, however, for different reasons. Will the protesters take to the streets again soon or once the COVID-19 crisis is over? In Lebanon, for instance, we saw that the protests started again recently in spite of corona and the risk of infection. The protest centers particularly in cities like Baghdad's Tahrir Square, in Nasriya, even parts of Karbala, Basra and Najaf, um, they haven't completely stopped. There are some small numbers of protesters who have continued to camp out in these centres, even under the lockdown and curfew rules and remained there. What was officially suspended was all kinds of marches and large gathering and protests. And that was suspended because of the COVID-19 response. There was no form of retreat in the language of the protesters to say, you know, we're retreating, we are going to continue to work with, you know, whoever they're talking to in terms of future demands. There was none of that. There was a distinct feeling right up until this day that they are being ignored, that they have not been listened to, that the decision-making process in Baghdad is not taking them into account. So like in Lebanon, protests will blaze up again since the causes have not been addressed. The protest movement had three targeted issues they were tackling. Corruption, the monopoly, the centralized, centralized monopoly of power of this, of this particular political elite uh, post-2003-04 in the country, And, of course, transparency and accountability. And now that accountability argument has become within it embedded the, the accountability for those who've been killed at the hands of militias um, and even the state, uh, the official state security apparatus since October 1st. So we have a movement much like what we've seen in Lebanon that is a movement that exists. And, you know, there is certain options for how the political elite look to could look to uh, resolve these issues there is no doubt that the protest movement is not over it has not been forgotten people have moved online what we're seeing which i think is to the benefit of the protest movement and in fact in hindsight in a few months maybe we'll look back on this and say that the break in physical gathering came at a good time is that the movement has shifted online or rather one should argue It is more present online as people share within the the, um, the the online channels that exist and the digital technology that they can use. But what they're doing is they're engaging in much deeper, much more intellectual conversations about everything from constitution to electoral um, elections and electoral design. And, and there's a much more, there's a much deeper, longer term conversation going on. And, you know, let's not forget the name of the movement itself. So this is an existential battle for these protesters. And by that very meaning, we've seen in the last six months that it's so much a part of who they are that people are willing to die. Children are willing to die to protect 
the public space that they've created, the freedom in that space that they've created. But by that same means, it's existential in the sense that it's not going away just because a prime minister is formally announced or not announced or appointed or his cabinet is approved or anything like that. There is a change, a real shift in this younger society across the country, whether or not they're physically present in Tahrir or not. So it seems to me that the generational change the country has started going through give reason to be optimistic that a more united and more progressive Iraq is possible. And I believe what we see is that the protests also contribute to a greater sense of national civic identity. You had mentioned earlier that the society filled in for the state in certain aspects, for instance, awareness campaigns and sanitation carried out by civic actors to contain the spread of the coronavirus. I'd like to ask you which role the militias, for instance, the popular mobilization units, PMU, play in that context. Could you elaborate on the services they provide in light of the corona crisis? So in terms of the militia response uh, vis-a-vis the COVID-19 outbreak, there has been a number of efforts and endeavors ever since President Barham Saleh called and formed his national initiative uh, to help combat the virus. Um, there have been regular statements from the Hashd al-Shabi, particularly from the uh, the, um, the uh, sort of head of the organization, Falah al-Fayyad, in terms of how the militias or how the organization is coming together to assess its efforts and engage on responding to the crisis. We've had um, the announcement of a number of field hospitals in certain provinces. Of course, one should also remember that Hashid or the PMU power centers across the country differ from province to province, and they are much, uh, relatively much stronger in, in parts uh, of the country than others. So it's not a uniform approach, shall we say, to to the entire country, I would argue. And certainly, I uh, anecdotally, we, we uh, I've been speaking to civil society partners and getting reports that there is a disparity in treatment and support by the um, by the Hashid in terms of, uh, you know, related to along ethno-sectarian lines, particularly in, in liberated and disputed areas, uh, which is no surprise and, and has been a, a major element that has impeded the reconstruction and rehabilitation of a number of, of provinces in the country. But the PMUs generally are acting to, they've uh, pledged their support to the government to help enforce the curfew. And ultimately, of course, where there is larger centers of decentralized power for the PMUs, um, they will have uh, more uh, ability to exert their security control in doing so. And there are a number of awareness and support campaigns that we've seen. Um, Falah al-Fayyad recently announced that 5,000 members of the PMUs had joined the initial 2,000 or 3,000 um, in the in the sort of phased out campaigning uh, of support. There's awareness on sanitation and apparently uh, that awareness spreads not just from within the organization to help members understand how to keep themselves healthy, um, but also public awareness campaigns. Iraq is facing overlapping crises. For instance, a slackening economy, the downslide in oil price, political instability, protests. How has the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated these issues already present in the country? There has been a massive um, exacerbation of, of already uh, very tense and tense issues in the country, even prior to the virus outbreak. 
And and certainly if you take the analytical position that the COVID-19 crisis is a contributing factor to the oil price collapse, of course, which it is in part because global demand is now so low and we've had the the geopolitical uh, issues between Saudi and Russia and and the, uh, you know, originally over production and the flooding of the market and then we we saw the the backlash response to that and and obviously the longer the COVID-19 pandemic uh, lasts and the longer that global oil demand remains very low is is catastrophic for Iraq. And what does it do to the political scene for instance the quota system? There is no longer particularly within the Shia majority blocks that have led this Mahasasa system for most uh, for the entirety of, of the last 17 years, is there is no longer one particular voice or one particular entity that has enough power to be able to rally everything around uh, around that that personal block. And now the pie is much more diversely divided. Spoilers in the game like Muqtada Sadr, for example, and others now have larger portions of that pie, particularly if we're taking the analogy and translating it into actual seats in parliament and the ability to genuinely politically spoil the process. Having said that, you also have within that mix uh, a fluctuating resurgence, or if you will, of, of of the other factions. So, you know, we've seen that the Sunni and Kurdish blocs have become the, the, the kingmakers in this decision and who they side with or don't has become the make or break. And certainly in the, the nomination and, and the last couple of years, Speaker Halbusi has, has reinvigorated the, the Sunni political movement to a certain extent. At least that is my thinking, in my opinion. And ultimately now, when you have so many actors now playing on a relatively more equal playing field than they were seven, eight years ago, what we have been, in my personal opinion, really seeing since as early as 2014, but certainly exacerbated by the 2018 elections, is that this entire system is in itself running its course. This is not to say that I expect some kind of explosion of the failure of the system or or constitutional crisis. Rather, I think it's just going to be a continued slow erosion and in some way, shape or form, arguably with the suggestion of a new electoral system, with the protests, we are already seeing the seeds of change being planted. And what about the militias? And within that mix, we're also seeing the fractures that are appearing, that are starting to appear within the, the PMUs and the militias. Quite clearly, one would assume, apparent uh, since the death of Abu Mahdi Mohandis, the deputy head leader, who was killed by the United States um, in a drone uh, attack uh, in January, alongside, of course, with the Iranian Quds Force leader, uh, Qasem Soleimani. And so what I do expect is that the country will probably continue to muddle along for the next month or two. They will pray for some kind of recovery in oil prices as the global easing of lockdown uh, uh, happens. And in terms of the militias, I think we're going to see a slow Uh, I wouldn't call it a breaking up, but we will see splinters and different formations. And I don't think we can any longer talk about one Hashid. But the smaller that circle becomes amongst militias, the more violent, you know, with no doubt they will become. So, you know, if we do get reinvigorated civil unrest and street protests and so on, I do envisage that the response could be 
even more violent than we have already seen, which would be not just disastrous for the political elite, but just absolutely heartbreaking. So it seems the corona pandemic has a huge impact on the protests and an already disintegrating system. The the crisis has, in some ways, paused a few of the um, the ongoing issues, notably sort of physical protests and gathering and marches. Uh, it's shifted focus in civil society towards healthcare, public health, sanitation, awareness, these issues, but only for a short time. The COVID pandemic itself, in terms of the public health emergency, is a short interruption into what is a continuing slow burn decay of this country's um, structures, institutions and governing, in my opinion, will probably see this system collapse in on itself uh, in, in some way, shape or form. Since we have reached the end of our program, perhaps one last question. Do you have a message to the new Iraqi government? I guess my message would be to the political actors as a whole. Make sure that Lebanon remains in your rearview mirror because the example that we're seeing in Lebanon, um, including the financial crisis, is not an impossibility for Iraq. Thanks a lot for your closing note, Hafsa, and for being with us today. And thanks to our audience for listening in. We will see you again next week when we discuss the situation in Syria and the impact of COVID-19. Stay tuned on the topics and please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Kas Syria Iraq. Mm-hmm.